Hello and welcome to Chat Sheet Get Well episode three. Today my guest Melanie Prince is here to talk about her recovery from domestic violence, alcohol, drugs and a couple of other things we're going to talk about. Um, How are you today? Good, really good. Thank you so much for having me on and giving me the opportunity to to share yeah I've seen a lot on your um social media about the stuff you do you do like fire walks and things like mm-hmm. that to raise uh, money and funding and awareness about domestic violence particularly yeah. um so I was just gonna ask you a couple of questions about your journey really mm-hmm. um so what was your what, what what is your story basically oh how long you got <laughs> <laughs> an hour actually <laughs> I'll try I'll try and take the the most relevant and most important bits away mm. from it. Um, so, oh God, where to even begin with my so did you? I mean, you'd mentioned before you had some problems with alcohol um, yeah. addiction, some drug problems. Mm-hmm. What not, kind of- not so much drugs. Um, okay. I, I did used to take drugs recreationally. And I think that with alcohol addiction and with mental health and with domestic abuse, particularly with alcohol addiction, drugs and alcohol go hand in hand so if you were around that situation all the time there are going to be times where there are drugs offered to you Mm. Um, but you wouldn't say you were dependent on drugs no the alcohol yeah absolutely not dependent on drugs I would never sit and take drugs by myself yeah I'd always do them if they were there yeah um but alcohol absolutely I I am an alcoholic in recovery I've been sober four and a half years four and a half years next month congratulations that's really good so when you were drinking, um, was that a result of the domestic violence that you were suffering? Yeah. So that's how it was a combination between domestic abuse and mental health issues. But the mental health issues I suffered were a product of the domestic abuse. Right. Um, so my, well, what I thought was my first toxic relationship was when I was about 14. Um and I was dating a guy a lot older than me. When I was a teenager, all of my friendship circles and relationships were all with people a lot older than me. I was living a life years and years beyond the age that I actually was. So I've got a daughter that's 13, she'll be 14 in April. And I think when I was, when I was her age, like I was going out dating guys that were going to prison and- A scary one. Yeah, like, my God. I'm glad because I mean because I've lived that life my daughter will never be able to live that life because I know um and yeah good when I was her age I was going out to clubs I was going to like Ultra Vegas when it was in the Winter Gardens and telling my parents I was going to the cinema how they didn't know I wasn't going to the cinema in hot pants and the eye boots (laughs) I used to hide it in my bag yeah but it was a different time then wasn't it we're going back like 25 years yeah it felt like it was a safer Um, time then did you, um, these guys that you were dating, were they sort of older than 18? Like we sort of, you know. Uh, I was dating a guy when I was 14, 14 or 15. I was dating a guy that, he must have been 18 because he ended up going to Woodhill Prison. Oh, wow. I think you have to be 18 to go there. Um, so yeah, that was really toxic. Then it just spiralled. I, I just went from one toxic relationship to another. And this continued right up until the age of like 34. Right. So each relationship got progressively worse than the one before. Um, so I've lost my train That's of thought right. then. You're just saying, so <laughs> your, your toxic relationship, do you think that that was 
Did you have any sort of trauma in your childhood that might have pushed you towards those things? Or do you yeah. think, yeah, okay, you did, yeah. Yeah, so it's taken me quite a long time to discover actually why I allowed myself to go from one toxic relationship to another. So you'd think after being with a hideous narcissist that would beat the shit out of you all the time, you think you'd learn. You'd right. learn from yeah. that lesson and know what red flags to look for for and not go into it again. But I continue to go from one bad relationship to another. And I had a particularly toxic relationship in my mid twenties. Um, and when I had my first two children, that was very much emotional and like psychological abuse. Um, there wasn't ever any physical violence in that one, but in all honesty, I think that mental and emotional abuse stays with you a lot longer than physical yeah. abuse um what kind of emo- if you as, as an example what kind of like emotional abu- abuse um do you mean was it like cheating down yourself cheating okay. cheating stalking yeah. um there were times i'd have my house broken into while i was in bed asleep in the house and items taken right. um watching my house name calling uh trying to kick doors through i've got about 15 back-to-back a4 sides of police call outs from this particular relationship right um so you're just constantly living in fear yeah just constantly being verbally abused constantly being called a fat slag at the door constantly being called a fat cunt you're this you're that you're disgusting no one will ever want you look at you you're you're ugly you're and And you're so young as well you can only be told and I have two very very small children as well and you can only be told things like that for so long before it ingrains in your head and you think, well, am I, am I, am I this disgusting, nasty, horrible person that's so unlovable? And is this why everybody treats me this way? Because I'm just not worthy of any love. And then you just lose all respect for yourself. So it was during that relationship that I started suffering with really bad panic attacks and they would predominantly happen when I was going to bed at night. So, and it got to a point where it become like a cycle. So it'd get to about six, seven o'clock in the evening. I'd be thinking, oh my, I've got to go to bed soon. I know I'm going to have a really bad panic attack. And I've called ambulances before from a panic attack thinking I'm having a stroke or a heart attack. Like it was that bad. Like my hands would seize up like this. My mouth would seize up from hyperventilating so much. And it was then that I started drinking. Right. To relieve the symptoms. Yeah. to And unfortunately, as shit as it it is, drinking does relieve the symptoms of it. It does calm you down. It's like a painkiller. It is. Yeah. It's it's just a really, I want to say good, but it's not good way. I think of, as well because there's not a lot of help for panic attacks. You know no. what I mean? There's not really. You don't really get a lot of support. You might get given like a sertraline or some sort of antidepressant, but it's yeah. not really getting away from the problem. No. And that's what I ended up being on. So I ended up being on. So I started drinking in the evenings purely to be able to fall asleep. I wasn't able to fall asleep without having a glass or two of wine. Um, Then after time, my body built up immunity to that. And then I was having to have three glasses of wine to be able to fall asleep, which is a bottle. Then after a few months, that didn't work anymore. Then I was having to have a bottle and a half of wine to fall asleep. So to begin with, it was only in the evenings. Yep. Um, I then started getting really bad anxiety and panic attacks in the day as well. So then I was drinking wine at lunch. And then it just, it just, just progressed got, got from that worse, because, yeah. and it's not as if I didn't ask for help. I had been to my GP so many times asking for help and they're like, well, it's an 18 month waiting list. Yeah. I'm like, and so, that's what, what, so what do I do told. in the next 18 months? Yeah. Just, I'll, I'll just be okay then for 18 yeah. months, shall I? So then I was put on, um, 
loads of different medications. So I was diagnosed with, I'll reel off my mental health diagnosis. I was diagnosed with um, anxiety and depression. So I was given like sertraline uh, for that. Then I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Mm-hmm. I was diagnosed with disassociative identity disorder, which is the same disorder that the guy in the film Split has. Okay. So yeah. they're telling me I had that then as well that must be scary for yourself um, so then I was though. on 500 milligrams a day of quetiapine for that which is an antipsychotic yep. then I was on beta blockers as well which you could just take as and when you started to feel anxious and then I was on 7.5 mil of zopiclone every night and I was still drinking because none of the medication none worked because they were treating me for something that I believe I didn't have rather than saying and this is such a massive problem that we have so I'd go to the GP and say, I'm feeling really down. I'm feeling really depressed, low mood. I don't want to get dressed. I don't want to do anything. And he'd be like, well, it sounds like you're depressed. Let me give you some antidepressants. Mm. Whereas when have you ever heard a GP say, okay, what's going on in your life? Yeah. What is happening in your life that could be causing you to feel this way? Mm. And they don't ever ask no, you that. They look and at the symptoms and yeah, they go, here's your tablets. Yeah, and that's the issue that needs to be resolved. So... When I work with women one-to-one or even in groups now, like the way I describe it and to try and make it easily absorbable is imagine it like a toothache. When you go to the dentist with a toothache, it's nothing to do with your tooth. There's a problem in your gum. Mm. There's an issue underneath it and that's what they deal with. And if they deal with that, then they can save the tooth. Rather than just ripping the tooth out, that's not what needs to happen. So, yeah, I always describe it being like a toothache like it's not what you see on the surface that's the problem you need to go deeper than that and resolve what's actually going on to cause this people just want to resolve the problem without treating the cause and without treating the cause the problem's never going to go away it's going to keep coming back so I was on all these various different medications I was still drinking because they weren't working I was drinking more and more and more um it got to a point then where I actually moved to Norfolk which is miles and miles away with my children when they were really young just to try and escape this living hell that I was living to try and move away from this person um so I did that the worst thing that the worst decision I could have ever made but I wasn't thinking clearly at the time I wasn't thinking straight and I was making very rash decisions I was just making any quick decision, any quick fix I could think of to yeah. try and, to try and solve the problem. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was during that time when I moved away from my family and my friends that things escalated quite badly. Um, I got into another relationship very, very quickly. I moved this man in with us. This man was an alcoholic. At this time, I wasn't an alcoholic. I was just binging. Mm. Um, this man that I moved into the house was an alcoholic and quite a frequent drug user as well. And it didn't take long for people to just pick up on what was going on. Yeah. Um, And it was during my stay there that my older two children were actually taken off me. They weren't removed from any sort of services. I didn't even have a social worker. It was done through, I'm going to say extended family members. Okay. Um, They're family members that I I no longer talk to. Right. So your family had stepped in. It wasn't through the social services sort of thing. It was just done from the intervention side of point of thing yeah so they were they were taken under really quite horrendous circumstances um I was told that they were going to be returned to me in 48 hours and that was the last I saw of them for a long long time wow um 
but yeah, it was really horrendous the way that they were taken. So that was pretty much the turning point for me where I, I turned imagine. from slowly becoming very, like crossing the line to becoming alcohol dependent. Yeah. Um, so your two older children, were they your only children at that point? Yeah. Right. Okay. So all of your, sorry, I've hit the microphone. All of your children have been removed. You're now with an alcoholic in the middle of nowhere with no yeah, friends so and they family, were taken and isolated. I, and I was left in this yeah. house with this perpetrator. Yeah. And I had disclosed things that had happened. It was, it wasn't a secret that I was in an abusive relationship. Um, so as much as I am grateful that the children were removed from the situation, it, it's not the correct thing that should have happened. Right. Yeah. We should have been removed as should a, have had as some a three. Yeah. They shouldn't have been taken and me left. We should have been removed as a three, but unfortunately that takes a lot of time, a lot of money. And mm. that's, that's the main thing that this falls down to. So the situation that happened to me, I believe was the quickest, easiest and most cost effective thing to do. Um, I am very fortunate that they went to my mum. Okay. I went to my mum and dad, my mum and stepdad, but I call him my dad. Uh, so they went there and yeah, my life just went from bad to worse after that. Um, my drinking became a lot heavier. My mental health problems become a lot, a lot more visible. Mm. Um, I was literally just drinking myself to pass out because the only time I got to see my children was when I was asleep I wasn't allowed to see them I was having to have supervised contact with them this went on for years yeah afterwards and you're still in Norfolk at this point is that right? yeah so I eventually came back to Milton Keynes um I approached Milton Keynes council told them my situation they were like we've got no duty of care to you because your children have been taken um I wasn't considered even a vulnerable adult given all the different mental health diagnoses that I had. Yeah. So I literally went in there pleading with them and crying and I was like, look, I need to get my children back, but I don't, I'm homeless. I don't have anywhere to live. Yeah. Like, I need you to help me. And they were like, we don't have a duty of care. Yeah. Because you don't have your kids with you. There's nothing they we can do. They don't have to do anything. Yeah. So I remember they sent me away from that council with with my suitcase and with like an information sheet of tips on how to stay safe living street homeless. Wow. Yes. They aren't kicking the bollocks. Yeah, honest, so they it? were like, you know, try and sleep under underpasses, try and keep your face covered because you're a female. Yeah. Um, Had you left the, the abusive relationship at that point or was this still you were going through? No, so I had left the relationship in Norfolk at that time. That ended with him and another person. Basically, I went down there and told him this would be the last time I come down. Um, I need to move back to, to Milton Keynes. Otherwise, there's no hope of me ever getting my children back. Him and another person assaulted me really, really badly that night. Um, and I was left. One of the neighbours saw what had happened. He basically took me into the front garden and held my hands behind my back while a woman just repeatedly punched me in the face to the point where I lost consciousness and a neighbour saw what was going on and called the police. And when an ambulance turned up, I was uh, picked up lying face down unconscious in the middle of like a busy road. So they'd just left me there. Left you for dead, basically. Yeah, and yeah. I woke up in a hospital. Um, like my face was out here. I couldn't even brush my hair for about a week because it had been like that badly hit. Yeah. Um, so that was the last of my... That was the last, that last time. I, the last time I saw him. Yeah. So I'd managed to get myself back to Milton Keynes. I explained all of this that had gone on, that the help I desperately needed, and yeah, I was just shut down. Just shut down yeah. at every single. So they didn't door even recommend any sort of like refuge centres or any domestic violence helps or charities. Or Not nothing. at this point. No. no. That's, yeah. Nothing that's, whatever. That's really worrying, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I was still drinking at this point, so I probably would have gone in there, maybe smelling of alcohol. 
It doesn't, and that doesn't change someone's no, need for help. It doesn't, but unfortunately it changes how you're treated. Yeah. Well, yeah. So because I'd gone in there probably not looking very presentable, even though I'd gone in there with like this sob story that was 100% my truth and I, I wasn't making anything up, I wasn't lying um, and desperately asking for help. They were just like, no, don't have no duty of care. So I managed to do some sort of sofa surfing between people's houses during this time. Um, I then started to rebuild my life and pick myself back up a bit. Um, I thought my mental health was really good and really in check. I'd stopped drinking. I then managed to, and I don't know how I did this. <laughs> don't ask me how I did this because I don't know. I managed to buy a hair salon. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, Just so, do. <laughs> I'd managed to, I'd gone into sort of partnership with somebody. Yeah. Um, but I'd been sober for a little while managed to get this hair salon up and running and I was like yes this is it like I've made it I've come through the other side everything's just going to look up from here on outwards um opened this hair salon was six weeks into trading still completely dry hadn't had anything to drink and then I did a launch party for the salon yeah so we had like a party in the evening some like free treatments and just to sort of spread awareness that the Mm -hmm. salon was open it was really busy it was doing really really well and I decided to have a drink at this open party because I was like, oh, you know, I'm fine. I'm not yep. an alcoholic. I can just drink socially just now. My mental health's great. I'm back on check. I can just have a few drinks with friends. Unfortunately, the reality is I can never drink again. Right, because of the addiction side. Exactly. I can't just drink with friends. I can't just have one or two drinks. So... um had quite a lot to drink at this open party and I don't really have because my mental health was so bad no matter how much I drank whether it be two glasses of wine or two bottles of wine I'd suffer with really really extreme blackouts right and it would literally it wouldn't take a lot of drink to make this happen to me Mm. so a lot of people can have like one or two glasses of wine with dinner be fine you wouldn't even know they'd had a drink but because my Mental health was in such a state. Were you still on a lot of meds at that point? Yeah, and as I was well. still on yeah, a lot so of meds. You don't know what you're doing. Well. It's all and the chemicals. Yeah, mixing and I up. would just yeah. get complete blackout. Yeah. So I don't really remember too much about what happened um, after that party. I left the party. I must have gone back in and opened up the cell on the following morning. Um, and about lunchtime that day, a fire started in the salon. I was the only person in the salon. And there was like a little smoking area at the back. So it was like a little enclosed, maybe about a quarter of the size of this room, a little enclosed brick area. And it was about the height of this room as well. And it had like a wire mesh ceiling. So that's where we used to go to have a cigarette. And uh, I was out there smoking and I went back in and one of my salon walls, and this literally just happened out of nowhere. It happened in a matter of minutes. One of my salon walls was like a complete wall of fire. Jesus. Um, and it was right by where the front door was. Now, in this building, there was only one door. There was only one exit and entrance. So there was nowhere for me to go. So I just remember running and hiding in this little like smoking area yeah. outside. And I shut the door. But the other side of it was like a dual carriageway. There was no neighbours. There were shops either side. Jesus. But not to the point where anyone would see me. Um, and then I remember looking down and seeing smoke starting to come under under the uh, under the door that separated it from the salon and this little enclosure that I was in just started to slowly fill up with smoke. Oh, God. And you know when people say, like, your life flashes before yeah, your eyes? I, I literally, I thought, that that's it, I'm going to die in here. Like, I am literally going to die in this, I can't get out. 
Um, so I just remember like jumping as high as I could to try and get my voice as heard as far as possible and just screaming for help as loud as I could. And one of the neighbouring shops had obviously seen smoke coming from the salon and they'd called the fire brigade. So um, they turned up and I just remember one of them putting a ladder up and like cutting through the mesh ceiling and throwing a ladder over. And there was quite a lot of smoke in the enclosure at this time. Yeah. Um, so I remember climbing up this ladder as far as I could and then they leaned over and like pulled me out through the ceiling of it. And I was hysterical when they got me out, yeah, as you bet, would be. Yeah. And uh, again, because they could obviously smell alcohol on my breath, even though I told them like, this this is my salon, like I own this salon. Um, yeah, I was cuffed by my hands and feet and thrown into the back <gasps> of a riot van. Yeah, no. taken straight to the police station, not given any medical assistance, nothing. I think because they could smell booze and because I was hysterical, they weren't really interested in anything I had to say. Yeah, they they were they, did they think you started the fire or I, something? I don't know. They? Well, I ended up I ended up getting charged and going to prison for it. Oh, okay. So they didn't um, think you'd, it was awesome yeah, or yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, without even giving me any medical attention, anything, they just threw me into the back of this right van. Took me to a police cell and I passed out. Um, and I think I was in there for about eight hours, nine hours before I woke up. Mm. Um, gave an interview and then they released me pending further investigation. Um, that went on for about a year. No, it was 13 months because this was in the February. I opened it on New Year's Day and I'd been six weeks into trading. So the middle of Feb. Then it finally went, I think I was charged about the September time. Um no evidence was ever found to this day of how that fire started. So they charged me because they couldn't what find were you any other. With? So to begin with, I was charged with arson with intent. And from the time of being charged to actually going to trial, I think the charge had been reduced five or six times. So it then went down to um, arson without intent. It then went down to reckless arson with intent and then it went down to reckless arson with anyway the final charge that I got done for was no they no they reduced it to accidental arson but then finally when I was when it went to trial it got reduced to reckless arson without intent um wow, so, so many different arson charges out yeah there, right? I know and I remember the solicitor I had when we went to the trial he was like um if you get found guilty, if you get a sentence longer than five years, I'm going to appeal it, like, with your consent. And I was like... You're thinking, whoa, five years, yeah. I was like, this is madness. Like, could yeah. I get that? And he was like, you could get life. It was like, arson is a really serious charge. So I was like, okay. So anyway, we went through the whole trial. Um, again, even at the trial, no evidence was ever brought forward because there wasn't any. But again, um, all my mental health issues were brought up. The fact that I didn't have my kids was thrown in my face in mm. court. Uh, they just painted a picture of me to be this reckless. completely reckless, alcoholic mess that mm. just doesn't even know her own capability of what or what she's yeah. capable of doing to herself. Um, so yeah, I got found guilty. I went not guilty. I got found guilty. Uh, the judge gave me 12 months, which... Jesus. I was really pleased to hear. Yeah, I mean, from five years Thinking to I was going to get a minimum but... of five years, he then said 12 months. Um, but because this whole situation was so new to me, like I had like my mum, my sister, all my family, like wait, like in the, in the courtroom with me. 
And I didn't know that I wouldn't get to go out and say bye to them. Or no, they, they literally li- take you straight yeah. to the cell, yeah. Yeah, they like cuffed me in the box and uh, took me straight out of a different door to the door I went into. And that was it. I went straight down like underneath into a holding cell and then got taken in one of them vans and got taken straight to Bronzefield that night. That must have been such an overwhelming experience to deal with. It was. Um, and at the time, I thought that that was really, really harsh, what happened to me. Like, mm. I was so angry that I'd been given this sentence with no evidence. But when I look back now, in hindsight, when this went to trial, I was actually homeless. Yeah. Like, I had exhausted every friend sofa that I could stay on I couldn't drive at that point so I didn't have a car I didn't have a car to live in and I was staying with somebody who was not very nice um at the time and being just being forced into situations that I didn't want to be in in order to have a roof over my head and to have somewhere to sleep and I'd gone between a bit prior to that I was actually street homeless so like I was sleeping on a park bench in Camden I went outside of Milton Keynes and like I was begging outside McDonald's for a pound to it's be able to get right something to, to eat. I was having to go into McDonald's just to like have a wash and yeah. manage to like get enough change so one day. Do you day think for... that moment when that happened and you were put in prison and stuff, oh, it so saved it my life. saving grace. Yeah, it was, like, it was absolutely. a blessing in disguise. Yeah. yeah, and that's the way I look at it now and like that's what I was getting to. Yeah. So at the time I thought it was really harsh and really out of order. Of course, yeah, you would. I mean, yeah. having your freedom taken away from you like that so quick, like obviously you're thinking, oh, you're not going to get found guilty. Mm there's no evidence and all of a sudden 12 months a year of your life's just gone yeah but if I if that hadn't happened to me when it did like obviously when I went to prison there are loads of great courses in there you can do um prison's a really really good way like to rehabilitate Rehabilitate, yourself um I mean I didn't learn because I did go back into drinking when I left prison right but for that time, I was. Were you in able there. to drink in prison? Did you have any sneaky drink drinks? No, in there? no. so you I can. Sure, I'm like, I don't know what they're like. Really, inside. <laughs> I, I think we need to do a whole other yeah. episode on like on my experiences the inside, in prison. Yeah. Um, but no, I didn't. Yeah. You can. Yeah, yeah. People, pe- can people make like hooch and yeah, stuff. That's what um, I've heard, yeah. But yeah, no, I just kept my head down. And yeah, and that's the best thing you could have done at that. Point. Yeah, because the thing is, with me, because I was so like. I didn't want to be living the life I was living. No. That's that's just not me as a person. I was very, very vulnerable. I was very, very easily influenced. Mm. And I was under the influence of alcohol and or drugs most of the time. So yeah. the decisions I was making were not my own decisions. They were not coming from... Your head from, wasn't clear enough no, to make absolutely th- not. the right choices. So when I was in prison and I couldn't drink and I had to just keep focused and knuckle down I was in a really really clear headspace so the mm. thought of even trying to make like alcohol or no. the thought of even trying to like do something yeah, that I mean, was you, wrong you're forced in a position where mind. you had to work on yourself for 12 mm. months and you had really no other way of I mean it would have been the, the horrible situation but at the same time the best situation did you um did you find that in in prison, you got enough support, more support than what you did on the outside. Loads, yeah, absolutely loads. And so I only actually Crazy. did four months in prison. Okay, okay. I did four months in prison and then four months on tag in mm-hmm. a um, like a female halfway house almost. That was another experience in itself. <laughs> so that's sort of a whole halfway house is basically to get you back into housing, isn't it? And back on your feet and sort so of. So yeah. I went there 
I was allowed to be released early on home detention curfew, so on a tag, like for good behaviour. Yeah. Like by trade, I'm a hairdresser, so I worked in the salon in prison. It's probably oh, nice. one of the best hair salons I've ever worked in. Yeah. Um. So yeah, my behaviour was really good, and I was I got granted early release. Um, but because I went into their homeless, I had nowhere to go. So the condition that I could leave prison early would be I had to go to like a fixed abode because I had an, an electronic tag on. It needs to be connected to a box that needs yeah. to be fitted in a house. And cause I had no house, I was homeless. There was nowhere for me to go. Um, so a space became available, uh, um, this place in Reading, it houses, I think 28 female ex cons and yeah. it is for women who are okay to leave prison, but, need that bit of extra help and support to reintegrate back into society. Mm. Um, so there were some women in there that had been in prison for like over 20 years. So when they come out, they're not going to know how to live. Yeah. They're not going to know how things to be. Things have changed. Yeah. The not, internet and things like they're that. They're not going to know. Yeah. Like there was no yeah. Facebook when no. they went in and it's a completely different world mm. and it's dangerous to release somebody because the world in general is, is a dangerous place. It is, yeah. And for somebody who's been so sheltered, even for a couple of years, it's not safe to just throw them to the wolves again. So that's what these sort of houses are for. Yeah. Um, and then there was a couple of other women there on tag as well that, again, like me, had no fixed address. So they had to be placed there. So do they help you find housing from that, that yeah. position? So once you've left your... So you've, left, you've been in prison, you've done your time, you've got on your tag, you're in your halfway house now and... What support did you then get from getting into housing? How did you sort of find your way back after that? Didn't. You didn't? Went back into alcohol. Oh, you went back into alcohol. Yeah. So the house I was in in Reading is staffed 24-7. Okay. um, Because some of the women in there have been away for really dangerous things. Like, I mean, I was in there with nonces and all sorts. Like, it was was horrible. It was not a nice place to live. Um, Because you have to be on your best behaviour. You don't want to go back to prison. So you can't say... Like what you think of these women. Exactly. And you know they've like sexually abused their kids and you know they've killed their kids. That's 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 to to keep your cool around people like that. Um that's discipline. Yeah. Because I wouldn't be able to have that discipline. Yeah, and because me being in a situation where like I don't even live in the same fucking world as these sorts of women. And I wasn't allowed to see my children. And I know like I've never been a bad mum. I just needed help and support. Mm. So to be around these women that had the care of their children and they've put them through the most disgusting, horrendous things. I know you've got to do is type these women's name into Google and you can read all all the newspaper articles about them. And they just go about like they don't give a shit. They've got no remorse. Like they don't care. So you're given two options. You either... Make your toast in the morning next to them and bite your tongue if they talk to you or and not go back to prison Mm. or you do something and then you go back to prison for God knows how long. And yeah, you made the right right choice. It's a hard hard decision. Um, But yeah, so for reasons like that, that house is staffed. Yeah. 24 seven. I think there's at least four members of staff at any given time, day and night. The whole house, even the bedrooms are all camered up. Um, nobody's allowed, you're not allowed to have like family or friends. Like Nobody's allowed to the property. I remember my mum and dad come up a couple of times um, with the kids to see me and they had to park down the end of the street. Like they weren't allowed to park in sight of anywhere near this house because there's nonces living in there. Yeah. Like it's, it's dangerous disgusting. Fish, yeah. Yeah, really dangerous. Um, 
But the level of support I had from the staff from there was out of this world. Yeah. It was amazing. You get given a key worker. Um, you get given counselling every week, one-to-one counselling and group counselling. I did the Freedom Programme there. What's um, the Freedom Programme? That is a programme for, it's like a, like a rehabilitation program almost for domestic abuse survivors. Okay. So it's a really, it's a really well-known program um, and it's amazing. It's free to do as well. There's quite a lot of women I know that have done it now. Okay. So even like that, we did that there um, and I made some really good friends. I made friends with women that I still speak to now. Yeah. So that was really nice as well. Um, but when I left there and went into housing... Your support system drops off again. Yeah. Non-existent. Completely yeah. non-existent. And that's why a lot of people, I mean, not not, not in your case, but a lot of people do re-offend. Deliberately. They, yeah. want, they want that support yes. system Yes, and I was going to say that there's quite a lot of women in there that I spoke to that will deliberately re-offend because it's that or sleeping on the streets. Yeah. And because they've got mental health issues, which then goes hand in hand with addiction, they can't get no help. Yeah. If you try and get help for mental health and you're using or drinking... They'll be like, you need to solve that issue before we can help you with this. But they fail to understand the reason why people are using or drinking is because of their mental health. So it's a catch-22 situation. Like it's, it's a situation that there's the bare minimal of resources to get out of mm. and it's really really sad i see it all the time yeah it is it's it's, it's shocking it's it's terrifying and you know and the world's getting harder and mm. we're expected to be able to cope more and heal more without yeah. any support systems in place mm-hmm. so when you left your um you're saying you went back to into housing your support systems dropped you started drinking again yeah started drinking really heavily and this was the point where i would say i crossed the line into addiction mm. Um, so yeah, even throughout like having my kids taken and going to prison, I was, I was not an alcoholic then Mm. I was drinking a lot more than I should have been, but I I was still able to go through phases of not drinking. Um, so that six months after I left the supported house that I was in is when I started drinking really heavily. I was in Reading. I was again, miles away from my support system. Um, during that time as well, which I have I've forgotten to mention, I had gone to like um, refuges yeah, and things like that, like safe houses. Um, one time when I was in a, I got offered a place in Slough. Because um, the second time, sorry, I, I should have mentioned this earlier. The second time I went back to the council for help was after I had left, well, escaped a really, really horrendous relationship, like, Violent to the point where there were so many occasions where I'd think, I'm not going to survive this one. Really? Like, this this one's going to kill me. Like, that scar on my head is from a headbutt. Bloody hell. Like, literally the front of my face was open. I had to glue that back together myself. I wasn't allowed to seek any medical attention for it. Like, you could see my skull. That's horrendous. Um, so when I finally left that relationship, um, I approached the council and I... As soon as a woman saw me, I remember just falling to the floor in bits and they had to move me into a private room and I just blurted everything out, everything that had happened. And she was like, listen, I'm going to help you, um, but I can't house you here because you're too high risk. From what you've disclosed to me has happened to you. He's going to find you. Yeah. She said, we can't, we can't yeah. house you here. You need to go to a safe house. So I went to a safe house, um, ended up taking an overdose at this safe house. Wow. 
uh, locked myself in the bedroom. Some of the other, and there were women living there with their kids as well, which I found really difficult because I wasn't allowed to see mine. Oh yeah. So these I women had, I almost felt a little bit of resentment. So I don't feel that way now, mm. but I almost felt a bit of resentment. Like, how have you been like saved with your children? And you didn't. And I haven't. Yeah. Like what? Like, am I really that bad a person? Like, what Did makes you, you more? That? What makes you more superior to me? Yeah. And I just couldn't cope seeing the level of support these women and children were getting as a unit. And I had just been ripped apart from mine, so I ended up taking an overdose there. Um, but the amount I took, so it did put me. It did make me unconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, fire brigade. Luckily, I left my bedroom window open, and fire brigade had to climb through a climb through my window up a ladder. Um, and again, another situation where I woke up in a hospital bed. Um, they said to me, I think they pumped my stomach while I was asleep. They said the amount you'd taken, if you had been found 15 minutes later, you would have gone into a coma that you may or may not have woken up from. Yeah. Um, so I was in that hospital for a week and not one member of mental health team come to see me in that entire, like in seven nights. Oh, I was literally just left in this yeah. bed for a week on a drip um, and I remember when the nurse come to see me, she was like, we're discharging you tomorrow. And I remember I burst into tears and I was like, you can't, I've got nowhere to go. Yeah. Cause the refuge said, because of what had happened, I wasn't allowed to go back there. So they literally, literally come, everyone's turned their back. Yeah. At this they point. literally come and dumped my case. And you've just literally by my hospital bed. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they said, we, we can't allow you to come back. Uh, so yeah, I remember crying to this nurse saying, you can't discharge me cause I don't have, like, I will be homeless. I don't have anywhere to go. And her exact words to me were, this is a hospital, not a hotel. Oh. Yeah. And yeah. that, and she was like, ring around some, ring around some hostels. So I managed to find a hostel place in Luton Ooh, and it was yeah. just full of middle-aged alcoholic men, mm. like pervy, seedy old men being sick in the corridors, just sitting there drinking neat vodka. Yeah. I can imagine. It's so that's, like, so that's where I had to go from there. But anyway, yeah, going back to, um, when I come out of this house in Reading. So that's six months after there. For a good six months solid, I just drank, drank, drank constantly. And I was drinking from the second I woke up in the morning. I was drinking enough until I would pass out. Then yeah. I'd maybe sleep for a couple of hours. Then I'd wake up. Then I'd drink. I'd only ever leave the house. I was suffering with really bad agoraphobia and hallucinations now because I was probably drinking... <sighs> it... I've been to the shop before, to the car before at eight o'clock in the morning and paid for, you know, them like... Nasty big bottles of cider. Oh, the Frosty Jacks. Like I've paid for them in one piece at eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And that's the stage. Yeah. yeah, That's the stage I'd reached at this point. So you feel like you wanted to die at that point. Yeah. That's the reason I was drinking. I just didn't want to live anymore. Did not want to live. And I remember sometimes waking up in my bed and I'd have been sick in my sleep and I'd have pissed myself in my sleep. So I'd wake up. That's serious. I wouldn't even change it. I wouldn't even get in a bath. That level of care just is completely gone. I literally would just like fumble around trying to like find either what was left in the bottom of a bottle of gin or white, whatever alcohol I could find. Um, I even debated drinking perfume at one point because it was light. And at this point I wasn't able to leave my house until it was dark. Like I thought people were looking at me. I thought everyone was out to get me. I thought I was going to get jumped, attacked. And just because of the sheer state of how I looked... Um, so as soon as it would get dark, I'd literally get like my pennies together. I'd get whatever money I had and I'd just go to the car up and buy as much alcohol as I could to get. To last you until you could get to out la- Yeah, to last me until, because I knew it'd be like another 24 hours before I could get back out. 
So yeah, I'd, I'd just drink and drink, fall asleep, wake up, covered in like in wee and sick. They'd be sick all down the side of the bed, sick all in my hair. And I'd literally just drink and just neck as much drink as I can, be sick again and then pass out again. And that was literally how I lived pretty much for almost six months. Mm. Um, after that six months, so around about June, this was June 2019, I was admitted like blue lighted to hospital. Um, so my entire body, even the, the, the whites of my eyes had turned yellow like from oh, jaundice. Shit, yeah. I didn't even see it. I didn't even notice it. No. Paramedics were called to my house. Um, and yeah, my whole body, they took one look at me and they were like, you need, you need to come with us now. Like there's, we can't waste any time. You need to come now. So I was admitted into hospital, Milton Keynes Hospital, thankfully. Um, and I was kept in there June 19th, because this is the last day I ever drank. June 19th, to, no, June 20th, 2019, um, I was taken to hospital and kept in there for two weeks. And had and I was completely open and honest with them, like I was. The thing is, throughout the later part of my journey where I had crossed the line into addiction, I was always so honest with any medical professionals. Mm. Um like I didn't hide from them how much I was drinking. I didn't hide from them the fact that I didn't want to drink, but I couldn't see any any other way out. I was getting no other help and support. So I told the hospital exactly how much I was drinking, why I was drinking, when I was drinking. Um, and they run a load of tests. So they did like a CT scan, an MRI, a sonogram, and like loads of blood work tests. Mm. And within about four days of being in that hospital, I was diagnosed with liver cirrhosis. Oh. So, which is like end stage liver failure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so basically, your your levels for when you have a liver function test, there's a certain element of it. I think maybe it's like your bilirubin levels. I'm I'm not hundred percent sure, but there's a certain level of enzymes in your liver, mm-hmm. um, and for it to be functioning normally and healthy, the normal range is between naught and sixty. Mine were over three thousand. Wow. So they were really like that's ridic- some serious ridiculous stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They were like off the chart bad. Yeah. Um, even when I went, so you were got, looking at. Were you looking at a transplant? Yeah, so I got pre-approved for a transplant list in there. And how old were um, you? This was four years ago, so I was thirty-four. Wow, yeah, thirty-four then. Um, yes, yeah, so I was given that diagnosis, but the thing that was so different this time, and they knew why I was in there. They knew that I had almost caused made this happen to myself you know it wasn't a, a disease I was born with like mm. I did this to myself yeah. but in spite of all of that they were so so nice to me yeah like so lovely to me the nurses used to come and sit on my bed with me and like we'd watch really funny stuff on YouTube and like I'd sit and watch like loads of I like binged through like Friday night dinner when I was yeah, in yeah. hospital um, and like the in-betweeners and things like that. I just tried to watch really like high five, really funny stuff. And the nurses used to always come in the bed and be like, it's so lovely to sit at the desk and just hear you chuckling away to yourself yeah. in the bed. Like you're doing so well, well done. And for the first time in years, like I was treated like a human being yeah, and not like an alcoholic, not like a piece of shit, yeah. not like... It's a shame that I had to get to that point where you nearly, you know, you need a liver transplant for Mm. someone to say, actually, this is a problem. Yeah. You know, with the amount of times you've reached out and never had that. And then, and that's, that's how, unfortunately, how the system works at the moment, Mm -hmm. unless you're literally on your deathbed, there's no, there's no support within the Mm. NHS. 
But they, um, so yeah, they come down and pre-approved me for the list. Um, but I was told I needed to be sober six months before they could actively look for a donor for a transplant. Um, and my hepatologist said to me, and I'll always remember these words. He was like, look, I'm going to be completely honest with you. He said, I've worked in this specific ward because there, there were other people like having detoxes and that on this mm. particular ward in the hospital. And he was like, I've worked on this ward eight years. He said, and I've seen people come in that are in a lot better condition than you. So, and they don't go home. Like they die here. Jesus. And he was like, like, you have to wait six months because you did this to yourself. So basically if I'd been born with, or if something, an accident had happened that made me need it, I'd have got one a lot quicker. But because it was from alcohol abuse, I had to almost prove myself yeah, to be worthy. But I was worthy of one. Yeah. Um, for six months. And so I had to keep going up for regular follow-up checks. As part of the prognosis, I was told, um, like so you can't eat any more salt. I was really, really like scarily underweight when I left the hospital. So I was on like Ensure Plus drinks. I was on eleven different medications for my liver. Plus yeah. I was still on all my mental health medication as well. They gave me a really, really good um detox with something called Librium. This I had asked my GP for this previously and they wouldn't give me it. Cause I'd gone to the GP and said, Look, I don't want to continue drinking, but I can't. I can't deal with the feelings when you stop. Yeah. Like I can't deal with the shakes. I can't deal with the hallucinations. I can't deal with the anxiety. I need some, there's a medication called Librium that you can take that eliminates all of that. Right. Um, But the GP would never give me it. So I said to him, I used to say, look, I'm telling you, if you don't help me, when I leave this doctor's office, I'm literally going to go and drink myself to death. And they would just let me leave. Yeah. So they gave me a Librium detox in hospital. So, um, yeah, like very, very quickly, I had like a really clear mind. I was on loads of like vitamin, intravenous drugs and things like that. And during that two weeks in the hospital, I felt like I, I got to the point where physically I felt like I'd never drank before. Like there was oh, no, really? there was no shaking. There was no hyperventilating. There was no like low mood. There was no suicidal thoughts. There was no anxiety, no like heart palpitations. I yeah, just yeah. felt normal again. Yeah. And that's all I'd ever wanted. Um, so yeah, he said to me, I don't know if you're going to make it six months. He was, I'll be completely honest with you, but there's no way that we can get around that. You have to be sober six months before we can look. Um, so on leaving the hospital, yeah, like we said, like you can't eat salt, you need to do X, Y, Z. Um, he said, and your internal organs are that damaged. Like you will never conceive. You'll never, ever be able to have any more children. Um, so, it's all looking pretty bleak at that part, point. Yeah, 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 so I left and he said, you know, we'll see you back weekly. And he basically said to me when I left, make the most of whatever life you've got left. And yeah. like, if there's things you want to do, people you want to see, go and do them. Yeah. Like, just go and do them make now. Make amends and stuff. So my... I would go in every week, I think for like the first two or three months, and then it started being two weekly. And my um, liver function tests were going back to normal at a rate that they said they'd never seen before. Um, so you weren't drinking? No. Yeah. No. 20th of June, 2019. Were this, is was the this last medication helping with drink. the cravings for. The, the thing is, alcohol. I never, ha- I never had cravings. It okay. wasn't the alcohol I was craving, it was. The numbness, maybe. It was love and support. Yeah. Okay. So you found that sort of elsewhere. And yeah, being given that support and 
just being treated with kindness, mm. something that I just wasn't used to for so many years, it almost triggered something in my head to think if these complete strangers can treat you like this and if they think you're worthy of helping, then maybe you are. Yeah. And mm. it just gave me the push that I needed to start loving myself again and looking after myself yeah, that's again. So, nice. so it was never ever alcohol that was the addiction. Yeah. Like it was just, just love and peace yeah. and support. Like that's all I wanted. And the fact of not having that, particularly from professionals, when all I needed was a bit of guidance. Yeah. You know, not having it. And it, it does make you just think you're just not worthy of helping. Yeah. Um so yeah, twelve weeks after I left the hospital twelve weeks after I left hospital, so three months, um, I fell pregnant. Oh, <laughs> completely unsuspected. Careful. I was told that that would never, ever happen for me again. Yeah. Um, obviously, I didn't find out. I didn't find out until Halloween, October 31st, uh, 2019. Um, but I'd fallen pregnant, obviously, in the in the September and I left July, and I left hospital on the 3rd of July. So your body birthday. had recovered. Like that. Literally, yeah, like, like three months. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and yeah, so I was having to go back for all these liver function tests again and they were like, we've never seen anything like this. Yeah. Like my, again, the same hepatologist I would see, and he was so lovely. And he said to me like, I don't quite know how you've done this. Yeah. He was like, but I'm telling you now, you've been given a second chance at life. Yeah. Like, please Grab it. don't waste it. Do not waste it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I found out I was pregnant on the Halloween on October 31st and went straight to the midwife, went straight to the doctors, um, straight to the hospital to see like my gastro specialist. And he was like, mm, you've got two options here. He said, you can either, he said, basically the medication that you're on is not safe in pregnancy. The mental health medication? All of it. All of it, right. He said, the mental health medication, some of it you can still take. He said, but the medication you're on for your liver, it's, it's not safe to say you can't take it while you're pregnant. Um, he said, so you can either terminate the pregnancy and continue with all your medication, which is what we recommend you do. Um, or you can continue with the pregnancy and drop your medication. And um, never touched pharmaceutical drugs since. Haven't you? No. <laughs> so you're no. not on any mood no. stabilizers, antidepressants, no. liver, nothing? Nothing. So Haven't been for four years. So that was your wake up call, right? The mm -hmm. baby come in and you're like, right, I'm going to. So yeah, what, what have you like done? Other than obviously coming off your medication, how have you supported yourself in, in feeling good and well, feeling loved? <laughs> I think this warrants a whole other episode yeah. in itself as well. Um, so finally I was housed. Yeah. I was given somewhere to live. With a new partner? In Milton Keynes. No, I was you on was, my own. I was on your own. I was on my own then. Babies there. Um, so this is while I was pregnant. I was given... And people say to me, oh, like, do you think you would have gone back to drinking? <sighs> I don't know. I would have liked to have said no. Yeah. That I would never have gone back to alcohol again. But like I was pregnant now. I had this life growing inside of me. I was given like the ultimate gift, in my yes. opinion, that any woman or man can be given in life. And that is a child. Yeah. And I'd already had my other two taken off me. And it was so overwhelming and it was a lot to take in. And... <sighs> With my other children, my parents were looking after them. Yeah. I knew they were being so looked after. you were still having after. access and you were still seeing them. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. still seeing them. Um, 
And slowly but surely, like things progressed. They were allowed to start staying at my flat on their own. Mm. So I was allowed you to put start the work having them. In, you know. Yeah, I was allowed to start having them unsupervised for the first time in five years. Mm. Um, but this pregnancy that I had growing inside me, like nobody could step in and do that for me. Whereas my parents stepped in and looked after the other children for me, no one could do that for me. No. She was growing inside of my body. Yeah. I the only person that could look after this child was me. And that was like my fighting force, I guess, to keep going. Like I had to do this on my own. I had to do this for myself. I had to do this for my children. Um, yeah. So obviously I've, I've never drank again since. So you, um, yeah, you were saying you've been sober for four, four and a half years. Four and a half years next yeah, month. Amazing. Yeah, and, and, and medication free. And medication free, free And that well. also is quite a big thing as well, you know, mm-hmm. being alcohol free, but also mood stabilizers, antidepressants, yeah. having that clarity coming off medication. I mean, I've been out medication free for, since I started getting to the gym. Mm. So my cure was the gym. As soon as I got into fitness, I didn't find that I really needed to yeah. have any mood stabilizers, antidepressants and stuff. Um, so your story is slightly different, obviously having your baby growing inside of you, being told you can't take the medication, actually realizing maybe you didn't need it. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's, that's the realization that I had. And that is something that I do try and advocate. I, mean, I would never, ever tell anybody to come off the of medication, not, no. never no. in a million years, but I do like to show people that there is another way, mm-hmm. um, so, so yeah, I was left in this flat. Um, I'd been placed in this flat. I was seeing my children at weekends, but the majority of the time I was just on my own. So I was on my own. I was pregnant. I had literally cut off anybody and everybody pretty much from my past. Um, yeah. when you stop drinking alone, even regardless of all the other things, you lose so many friends. Yeah. So many friends. Um, mm-hmm. because you don't drink and unfortunately it's such a, social, a huge part of society. Yeah. So I literally cut off from everybody. Um, and years prior to that, I had always been into sort of like spiritual things and holistic things. So to kill the time, to kill all this free time that I had, I started um, learning. So yeah. I started doing loads of online courses. Um, I've done courses in in children's mental health. I've done courses in safeguarding in adults and things like that. So I started doing loads of like distance learning courses. Mm-hmm. I started a couple of university degrees as well, but they're too long. I didn't go oh, through yeah. it. <laughs> I got two years into my little I started one in psychology <laughs> and got a year through it. And I started one in, in social work care. I think I got about four months through it. But um, I just needed like small bite-sized things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like to, little to, to digest. Yeah. And so I started doing some distance learning courses and just really rediscovering who I was because I didn't I didn't have a clue who I was I didn't Mm. know who I was I had been living for the past sort of seven eight years as just a complete shadow of myself so it was a really good opportunity for me having spending all this time by myself I was completely sober and being happy by yourself as well and yeah I just learned to really thrive in my own company and just really discover who I was because i I had no clue. I yeah. felt like I'd almost been reborn. Um, so yeah, I did quite a few different courses and different things. Started doing like really mindful things like crafts and I started doing like cross stitch and yeah. things that you really have to concentrate on that are going to give you like an end result that you're going to be really, really proud of. Um, 
And then I started doing a lot of research on things that I personally had experience with. So things like trauma and like holistic therapies and holistic medicine. Cause again, I was still going for all my liver checkups. I was still being told you're making like a miraculous recovery. And you're like, why? Like, How come I'm making yeah, these recoveries? There must like, be something behind this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I was being told all this and I, I was just fascinated by it. So I just started doing my own research into things like traumas and predominantly like healing, healing and different stuff. modalities that you can use for healing and without the like the use of pharmaceuticals and things like that so that's when I discovered things like meditation not discovered but when I sort of you when I started um like taking courses yeah like proper online learning courses from home so in things like meditation and uh, emotional freedom tapping and breath work breath work's a massive oh, I love one breath work, yeah and started just going down a bit of a rabbit hole and this went on mm. pretty much like, well, it's still going on now. Yeah. <laughs> but throughout There's the so whole much of my pregnancy, I literally just like had my head in a book um, and was just researching and absorbing knowledge and learning and not only learning, like practicing them myself. Yeah. And I was just fascinated by, by it all and continuing my journey alcohol free and medication free and using these other things to be able to cope and Mm -hmm. get to the root of my issues and what had caused all of this, things that I was never given answers for by medical professionals. So a road to discovery of yourself. Yeah, like a journey, complete complete journey of self-discovery. And then I remember coming across a video someone shared of of um, like quite a famous life coach. And I didn't really know what a life coach was Mm. at this time. And I'd been very, very public, like through my social media platforms, I'd started documenting my journey and started talking really openly and honestly about certain things that had happened and how I'd got to the place I'm in today. Yeah. Um, And yeah, just sharing my recovery journey. And I just started having hundreds and I mean hundreds of messages from people like I'm struggling with this or I'm struggling with that or how did you do it can you help me do this or can you help my partner can you help my sister um (coughs) so I started offering just loads of free help to people anybody and everybody that needed it and I'm like this is what's worked for me like this is how you do it yada 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 and then I saw this video of like life coaching and I, I'd never heard, I didn't really know what it was. I'd heard of like Tony Robbins and oh, that's, yeah. that's sort of, the, that's all I knew. That's all, that's all <laughs> I really knew about life coaching. And then I heard this guy share his story and his story was so similar to mine, like literally down to pretty much every last detail. And he had also turned his life around and he mm. now calls himself a life coach and teaches other people yep. how to make those life transformations himself. So then I went on to um, study to be a life coach. So I then got a qualification in holistic life coaching, uh-huh. which is what I do. Yeah, It's what I believe saved my own life and it's what I use on my own journey. So it makes sense that that's what I teach other people and that yeah. there's so many different categories of life coaching that you can do. Um, but I do holistic life coaching. So yeah, what started out as being just helping people through like through my social media platforms, I have now grown four and a half years later into an actual business. Yeah. So it's now what I do. It's now what I and do full time. And the business that you also have the experience and the knowledge and the the lived experience, the lived experience which is 
priceless. Like you can't buy that. You can't. You, you can go that. on a training course to be a life coach, and you could have lived none of those experiences yourself, and not yeah. actually be able to relate to anything you're teaching. Mm-hmm. And obviously, coming from you, you've recovered. You've got your life sorted. You've got your kids are back. You know, you've got two new children now. Two, two. Have you got two babies? No, one. one. <laughs> You had one, you got one. Yeah. I thought I saw two in the pictures. I no, I couldn't cope with two. It might have been my niece. I've got a niece that's a year older as well. Oh, so okay, so maybe that's her. what it is. Yeah, no, um, God, just the one Yeah, baby. to be able to share what you've done and be able to make something positive of it, but also giving that information out there to people that isn't necessarily available in the mainstream yeah. NHS. And people should be, you know, we are in a situation where the NHS is struggling. It is. It's underfunded and overrun and... I just remember being told, even when I, because when I left the hospital after being given this life sentence almost, I didn't even go home. I went straight to an alcohol and drug recovery centre, mm. got myself a key worker. And again, like I couldn't have asked for a better key worker. Was that AA? Was it? A, no, AA? I went to one AA meeting, um, but all they really focus on is like cravings and and you didn't have I those, didn't like you have said, cravings yeah, for that, alcohol, yeah. no. You just wanted the support side of things. I just had cravings for, yeah, for like support and yeah. love and that's all I needed. Yeah. And like people underestimate the power of just giving someone like a hug, mm. even if someone's coming at you, like shouting, screaming, swearing. Like most of the time it's not personal. No. It's not personal just to really you. Stressed out. You rather than bite to that and react to that, because even like anger, anger is not even a primary emotion, it's a secondary emotion. Like something has to have happened to cause somebody to be angry. People yeah. don't just get angry. So yeah, even if someone's coming at you and I had a really vile tongue and was nasty to people when I was a drinker. And I think back now, rather than close your door on me or shut me off regardless of what I said just know it's not fucking personal Mm. like people say if someone's being nasty or mean it's more to do with them than it's nothing to do with you if somebody had just come at me being in those states and just give me a hug and been like it's okay yeah I literally like Oh, it consoles Yeah, you so would have just dropped that. You would, yeah, you would like have dropped that out, persona. Yeah. And I'm exactly the same. I'm still like, it yeah, now. I get angry and I say to my, just give me a cuddle, I'll be all right. Yeah, do you know what I mean, like, just give don't me a cuddle with a kiss. Yeah. This is not going to go down. Don't, well. like, don't feed it. Don't yeah. fuel the fire. I get, I get it. Um, but yeah, what was but I yeah no, I think, um, say, you know, like you said before, you never, like, you've never, you were in that assist, um, the hospital, the nurses were being really nasty. They didn't know you personally. No, they didn't know me they, from Adam they, and- they, Their job is basically to make sure you're still breathing, you're still surviving, but yeah. their love and their nurture and their care they were took so you lovely. to a different level. Mm-hmm. Um, you could have been with a different nurse that said, this is a hotel, this isn't a hotel, it's a hospital. Yeah. Which has put you on a completely different path. Yeah, it's just completely changed the trajectory of, of my future. Yeah. And... So having those moments and being kind and caring to people, you might not necessarily know them. Even if you don't want to, like, mm. there's not much that that can't be solved in this world with love and with kindness. Yeah. As much as it might be difficult to give, and it is difficult sometimes. Like, I've had to go through so much healing work where I've forgiven every single one of my abusers. Like, oh, yeah, I've that's gone, a difficult stage I've gone through. I've gone yeah. through, like mental abuse, emotional abuse, really bad um, like physical abuse. I've suffered really fucking horrendous sexual abuse as well. And I forgive all of them. Yeah. I forgive every single one. I know that yeah. it wasn't personal. I know that 
it's not a direct attack on me because mm. I know that I'm not a horrible person and I know I did nothing did to nothing deserve wrong, those yeah. things. So I know now it's not personal. Is... And to just forgive them mm. for not being the person that you thought they were. Or... Yeah, I mean, carrying that that feeling of hatred is more damaging to you than it, it is to them. It is. Like, I always say to people, they're like, oh, I, can't, the I, I can't forgive them. I can't forgive you them. To, like, yeah. they did something that was really, really horrendous. And I say to women, like... Do you think that your abuser sits at home and thinks about what they did to you? Yeah. No, they don't give a shit. They probably don't give you a second thought. Like they don't care. So by you still rehashing this and by you still holding on to that hate, the only person that is suffering, he's not suffering or she's not suffering. They don't care. Exactly. The only person that's suffering is you. So you need to let go of that. And the best way to let go of that is to forgive it and you're not forgiving what they've done. You are forgiving that the outcome was not what you wanted it to be. When you met that mm. person, you're forgiving knowing that you did nothing to, to deserve it. You're forgiving them for not being the person that they probably deep down want to be because they, they can't, they don't know no better because it's Whatever's not personal. It's them, nothing yeah. to do with you. Yeah, I think you never... You'll never have freedom unless you forgive. No, exactly. Amen to that. Yeah. So, so true. I'm going to put some links in the bottom of this podcast Mm -hmm. to your personal Instagram um, regarding your life coaching and stuff like that. Is there any other like um, charities or organisations that you would recommend to anyone that's going through domestic violence, sexual abuse or any sort of... Anybody that's going through... um, Domestic abuse. Uh, there's a lady called Layla. Her Instagram page is called Layla. Please tell my story. She is doing phenomenal work with female survivors of domestic abuse. Um, she has got a show called The Survivors Who Broke Their Silence, where mm-hmm. she gives females a voice to speak their truth and tell their story. I've been approached by magazines in the past saying we want to share your story. Blah blah blah. And because my perpetrators weren't given a custodial sentence, no one will touch it. Oh, really? No, you're not allowed to share it publicly in like that, in that sort of space. Basically, if unless they've been convicted, you can't say they've done all these things. Is that basically? Yeah, what it but is? this. Yeah. Uh, but they did happen. Yeah. yeah. So what Layla does is um, says, "No, fuck that. You tell your story. Tell your story. It, oh, well. it, it doesn't matter because yeah. the reality is." the very bare minimum of perpetrators, particularly for domestic abuse, get any sort of conviction. Mm. Um, so yeah, I would say follow her page. She's a really, really good person to follow. As well as my coaching, I have recently set up like an all-female membership. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it is quite woo. <laughs> we do like a manifesting with the moon and releasing with the full moon. There's loads of guided meditations on there. There's subliminal audios on there. Uh, there's loads of information about cyclical living. So living in alignment, like with your cycle, whether you have periods or not, we still have cycles. Mm-hmm. And once we understand our cycles a bit better and our what thoughts and emotions we go through in our different seasons, we know what's coming up. Yeah. We can, we can then handle it better. Yeah. Um, so there's loads of information on stuff like that in there. Um, I do Zooms once a month with like live breathwork sessions. Um, yeah, there's loads. Yeah. I wanted to create something. And how much is the membership every month? £12 a month. £12 a month for so all that. That's really for good. For everything. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so the membership's an actual website. Then there's a private Facebook community as well where I'll go on and do lives and things. Um, yeah, and I just wanted to create as much content and as much value because I remember starting out on my journey 
I didn't have the money for a life coach. No. I didn't have the money for and all these expensive, expensive, expensive fancy courses. And there wasn't really anything available that I needed that was genuinely going to help me that was within my price budget. Mm. So that's why I've created the Female Guide membership. Um, yeah, and it's predominantly a self-development membership, but for uh, from a very sort of spiritual, holistic yeah. point of view. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's loads of fascinating information in there. You can even join for a month if you don't like it. Just unsubscribe. There's no charges. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely going to be joining up to that because there's yeah, stuff there that Honestly, I want to learn oh, about the amazing. moon. I think the moon, the moon stuff's so fascinating it how it affects your mood. And I've always looked at the moon and gone, it's your fault, you bastard. Yeah. So I know that there's something going on with that moon, but I'm definitely going to sign up because I said I want to learn more about that because I definitely want to learn about my cycles and stuff like yeah, that. My I boyfriend think definitely got, wants me to learn about it. I've only got, oh, don't. My partner said the other day, what was it? We got into bed and we we did um like a manifesting with the new moon. So we do like a full on ritual for it, like every month. We do one for the full moon, one for the new moon. And on his side of the bed, there was like a glass dish with water in it with essential oils. Then a mason jar inside that with like dirt from the garden in. Then a tall white canton in like my manifesting list. And he moved it and he was like, there's all water in this. I was like, I know. I was like, don't touch that. That's my manifest with the new moon. <laughs> He was like, why is there water? Why is it all still there? I was like, because it's, it's still working. And he was like, for God's sake. I was like, just don't touch it. If this is going to make me a better person, leave <laughs> yeah. it alone. If this is going to help get us the bigger house that we want, yeah, then yeah, come yeah, exactly. on, leave it there. Yeah. And those things, they work. I'll tell you something. Honestly, and when, when you do it as a group, like I've only had this membership. I only set it up four weeks ago. So I think we've got 25 members so That's amazing. far. So yeah. I'm so pleased. Like More I, energy. Yeah. The more, the more members that we do it with together, like the more High energy frequency. it creates. Yeah. And, and it's just so lovely to share these sort of experiences with other like-minded women as well, yeah. with other women who are on the same level as you and just all doing it together. And you can all keep each other accountable. We all share our stories. We all share pictures of our little rituals of like what we're doing with the main. And Sounds yeah, great. it's really, it's just a really nice all female community. Wicked. Yeah. Where, where we do, where we do a bit of witchcraft. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's I'm really definitely good. up for this. I'm up for trying new things all the time. Definitely. <laughs> My boyfriends would be like, for God's sake, what are you up to now? Um, but thank you so much for coming on and obviously thank you congratulations on being sober congratulations on getting everything sorted for yourself and obviously you're an inspiration to people out there that you know might be going through those struggles right now just let them know you know you can come out the other side you can get mm -hmm. your stuff together it's not game over no. just because you've got an addiction doesn't mean that that's that everyone's given up on you and there is hopefully there's you know like you said there's support systems out there that mm -hmm. might not seem mainstream but they are there yeah um so yeah reach out speak to people um and heal but thank you so much for coming thank on. Thank you for having me. Probably have thank to do you. another one about the witchcraft stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once I've tried it and I come back on we'll and talk do, about we'll, it. We'll do one all about moon and moon cycles moons, and, yeah, how, yeah, we'll it, and how it affects us. Perfect. All right. Thank you.